uh, broadly speaking, we're going to be talking about spiritual formation, transformation, and asking that main question, who are you becoming? Uh, now, for some of the youth, uh, this might be a bit of a familiar topic because we covered it at our spring spiritual formation retreat. Uh, but this is not just a topic just for youth. It's a topic for each and every follower of Jesus, regardless of whether you're five years old or 15 or 85. But before we dive in, I want to give uh, credit where credit is due. Much of what I'm learning and I'm going to be sharing about comes from two resources that have been uh, very influential in my own discipleship as of late. The first is a book called You Are What You Love by a Christian philosopher. Uh, he's Canadian, by the way. His name is James K. Smith. Really, really good read. And the second one, it, it works really nicely together with that, uh, is a whole library of teaching resources. If you're looking for something to go through with your small group, practicingtheway.org. Uh, great resources. And it's uh, by a pastor from Portland uh, by the name of John Mark Comer. And so I'll be borrowing a lot of these two resources um, to share for these next couple of weeks. And while we're pausing our first Samuel series, uh, it doesn't mean that this is completely disconnected from that. Actually, as I was preparing these messages, I realized they go uh, really well if you were to do a character study of Saul and David side by side. Remember, these were two men, both anointed by God to lead Israel, and yet the two could not have been more different, right? Both had the same opportunity and invitation to become godly men, to become a good king, and to lead Israel well. But as the story shows, Saul and David followed very different paths, and their path shaped them into becoming very different kind of men. One became a man marked by poor choices, a lack of faith in God, personal insecurities, the misuse of power, bad character, and ultimately failure. The other, while far from perfect, right? We know David had his dark side and his mess-ups too. But far from perfect, he became known as Israel's greatest king and recorded in scripture as a man after God's own heart. Both anointed by God, but both became pretty much polar opposite type of people. And so these character studies that develop through the book of 1 Samuel, they can serve as a mirror to each of us, begging the question, who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? And if we don't always like the answer to that question, then the follow-up is, how do we change? And I want to defeat a lie straight out of the gate um, you've likely heard the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? You never hear young people say that, though. It's usually older people who say that as a way of saying, like, I can't learn anything new or it's too late for me to change. And while it's funny, it's actually a lie. I don't care, again, if you're 5 or 85. If you're breathing, you can change. You can learn. Granted, it is much harder to change the older we get, right? But with the help of the Holy Spirit, change is always possible. Age is not a hindrance to God's work in your life. If you think you're too old for God to do something new in your life, remember people like Moses who were called by God at the age of about 80. 
So these questions, who you are becoming and how do we change, are for you no matter what stage of life you're in. So we're talking about spiritual formation and transformation and this is going to be a, a three-week mini-series, so I, I would invite you to come to all three uh, or access the messages online because on their own, they might feel a little incomplete because they are. They work together with each other. They're meant to work in tandem with each other. So today, I want to introduce the topic, and we're basically just going to cover three things. The goal of spiritual formation, the problem that we face, and then a way forward. So let's dive in, and we're going to define our terms. What is formation? Well, formation is quite simply the process by which something comes into being, right? Um, for example, if you are a skilled potter, like one of our young adults, Ayal, this is a great shot of her at work. If you're a skilled potter, you take a chunk of clay and you form it into whatever shape you want it to become, that chunk of clay is not yet what it will one day be, right? Formation implies that there is an ongoing process. There is work to be done. There are edges to be smoothed, attention to detail needed. So then, what is the aim of spiritual formation? Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's also up on the screen here, but if you have a Bible... I encourage people to, to navigate that. Uh, it's right after 1 Corinthians, which is right after Romans. What is the aim of spiritual formation? This is what Paul says uh, to the Corinthians. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Did you catch that? I'll read in another translation. I like, I like the New Living Translation because I think the plain English is, is quite helpful here. It says, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, here it is, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. The aim of spiritual formation is to form us to become more and more like Jesus. How does that happen? Well, this verse emphasizes the work that God does in our life, in our spiritual formation. And there's other verses, we're going to touch on those in a second, uh, where the emphasis is on our part, the part that we have to play. And we'll get there, but what I need you to know is God has a part in your formation, and you have a part. Spiritual formation um, can also be called just discipleship or apprenticeship. Uh, discipleship is actually kind of a unique Christianese word that might be a little bit foreign to, to some in our culture, in our day, but we are all familiar with the word apprentice, right? And they're pretty much the same thing. According to uh, Webster Dictionary, an apprentice is one who is learning by practical experience under skilled workers, either a trade, an art, I love that last one, or a calling. If someone, it's someone who's learning under the instruction and the tutelage of someone else, right? It's someone who's being mentored. 
The apprentice wants to become like their mentor, like their coach, like their sensei, like their teacher. Or for the Star Wars fans in the room, it's the picture that you get uh, of the Padawan and the Jedi Master. The Padawan wants to become like their Jedi Master. And so in order to do that, they need to spend time with them, learning from them, watching the Master do it, and then trying it on for themselves. And so as followers of Jesus then, we are his apprentices, his Padawans, <laughs> I love that. Meaning that we commit ourselves to being with Jesus and learning from him so that what? So that we become more like him, that's right. But here's the tension. To become more like Jesus, by necessity means we need to become less like something else. Right, let's think about that logically for a second. Um, If Ayal takes a chunk of clay and she forms it into a beautiful plate, this is hers by the way, great work, it means that every time she's working on it, it becomes less and less like it was before and it becomes more and more like this plate, right? And if you are being shaped to be more and more like Jesus, then it must mean that you must become less and less like whatever you were before you met Jesus. It must mean that you become less and less like whatever is competing with Jesus. Only then can real change happen. Only then will we begin to see growth. God has a part to play, and we have a part to play. But unlike, here's the difference between us and that chunk of clay, of course, right? The chunk of clay doesn't have its own will. It simply is, and it submits completely to the hands of the potter. We, on the other hand, have free will, and so we have to choose willingly to allow the potter to work on us, to participate with what he's doing in our life. And only then can real change happen. God has a part, we have a part. And yes, God does most of the heavy lifting, absolutely, but we're not just passive chunks of clay. We have to be willing to submit daily to the good potter's will and be willing to participate in what God wants to do in our life. The Apostle Paul, uh, he says it best in Ephesians 4. This is the part where it emphasizes our part that we have to play in our discipleship. He's talking to Christians and he says this, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul's picture of transformation, of becoming more Christ-like, is a daily decision of putting on the new self and putting off our old self. The picture he wants you to get um, is the same picture that happens in your bedroom each and every single day, right? Every night before you go to bed, you take off the clothing you wore that day. And then every morning when you get up, you choose fresh, clean clothes to put on. Unless you're at KCBC camp, then you're a camper and you wear the same thing for five days. But normally, we take a fresh pair of clothes the next day, right? It's a daily decision that we make. 
And Paul is saying that the same goes for our spiritual formation. Each and every day, we must choose to put off our old self, which Paul says, by the way, is actually being corrupted by deceitful desires. And then to put on the new self, to put on Christ. I think sometimes we we get it wrong and we think, well, being a Christian, it's just a decision I make and uh, that's it. And while that's part of the truth, you do only become a Christian once, right? You become adopted into God's family once. There's one baptism. That does happen once. But becoming more like Jesus, that's a daily thing. That's an ongoing thing. That does not happen just automatically. And here's our second point. And it's, and it's the problem we face. It's the tension. Why is transformation so hard? Why is it so hard to change? Like, let's see if you can relate to any of this. Um, young people who were just at, at Unite North, right? You go to this amazing, amazing youth conference. The worship was great. The messages tugged on your heart and you felt so close to God through an event where you were surrounded by other peers worshiping God. And at the end of the event, you resolve that you are going to be a different person. You're going to come back changed moving forward. But you get back home, you get back to the routine of your work or your school or your friends or your family and the the grind of everyday life. And let's say by mid-Tuesday, you feel like nothing is different. Nothing has changed. You're right back to who you were. Or adults, maybe you come to church regularly hoping that it will eventually change you, but then Monday to Saturday, you feel like you don't experience a change. Maybe you hear an inspiring message at church or you listen to a great podcast or you read a great book and you're inspired to change. Okay, so you wake up the next morning, things are going to be great. You're like, I'm going to quit that sinful habit or that unhealthy pattern in my life. I'm going to be salt and light. I'm going to love my neighbor. You're off to a great start. You're killing it. You're so virtuous and holy. You look at the time and it's, It's only 9 a.m. and you haven't left your home yet. And then by 9.15, you already did that thing that you committed never to do. Your interactions with people right out of the gate are already less than Christ-like. Your resolve to change is gone and you're back to the same old you. Can anyone relate to that struggle or is it just me? Come on, don't leave me hanging here. Okay, good. Why is transformation so hard? Like, you know the right things. You might even wholeheartedly believe them. And you know you need to change, but somehow there's a gap. There's a gap between what you know and believe and what you actually do. Do you experience that gap sometimes? All the time. (laughs) If so, I have some, some comforting news for you. You're not alone. In fact, you're in the good company of the Apostle Paul. If you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, uh, it'll be on the screen as well. Romans chapter 7, verses 15, and then we'll skip over to verse 19. Paul talks about this same struggle, and it's actually some of my favorite blurbs from Paul partially because it totally sounds like it came out of a Dr. Zeus book, uh, and I'm a parent of young kids, so I just caught that. 
but also because it just hit me. I'm like, Paul gets it. And this is what he says, verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And then skip down to verse 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Doctors, I mean, the Apostle Paul. The Bible, everyone. Paul gets it. He knows that frustration of saying, man, why is it that I know and believe all the right stuff, but yet there's this inconsistency in my life and I don't experience change? So what's the key? How do we bridge the gap between what we know and believe to be truthful, life-giving, good, Christ-like with what we actually live out? If you're like me, then for the longest time I thought, well, if only I hear the right sermon or if only I listen to another good podcast or if I just like read another great book, then I'll change. In other words, if only I can get the right information, it will lead to transformation, right? James K. Smith, he points out that we live in the aftermath of a philosophy that has actually kind of taught us to think this way. A philosophy that has reduced human beings to little more than brains on a stick or just thinking things. Um, See, in the 1600s, there was a famous French philosopher uh, named René Descartes, and he was famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. And more modern philosophical thinking has kind of picked up on that and said, you are what you think. But while Descartes and some of these philosophers were incredibly smart, what if he was wrong about that? What if we're not first and foremost just thinking things or brains on a stick, but what if before we are rational thinking human beings, we're actually first and foremost something else? See, if we were just brains on a stick, if we were just rational thinking things, you wouldn't struggle with the sin that you struggle with. You wouldn't struggle with anxiety or lust or gossip or jealousy or anger or whatever your struggle is. Because if you are what you think, you could just think your way out of it. Right? Oh, it's not, it's not good to look at someone lustfully? Oh. Now I know that information. Thanks, I don't struggle with that anymore. Oh, I'm dealing with financial stress, with hard relationships, with social anxiety. Oh, Jesus says don't worry. (laughs) What a wonderful concept. Now that I know that, that was easy. Don't worry, what a great idea, right? Or you're struggling with a really difficult relationship. You're frustrated. That person is just driving you nuts, whether it's at work or in your family, close relationships. And Jesus says, well, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, patience, self-control, kindness. Okay, Bible app, click, download, install. Ah, I like you now, right? Like, it would be so easy if we were just thinking things because we could think our way to holiness. But that's not reality though, is it? 
No, the reality is you can know all the right information, you can even agree with it and believe it, and still there can be this massive gap between what you believe and know and then what the reality of your day-to-day life is. So if we can't think our way to holiness, we can't think our way to becoming Christ-like, maybe, just maybe, we're not only governed by our rational minds, but by something else. I want to read you guys a story in the Bible, and it's found in John chapter 1. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He had just gotten baptized by his cousin John, and this is the first encounter that Jesus has when two of John's disciples leave John to follow Jesus. Poor John. And in this story are the first words that come out of the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Pay attention to it because I think the few words that Jesus says in this story are the key for us to bridge that gap. John 1, starting in verse 35. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. In this story, you have these uh, two eager new followers leaving their old mentor, John, to follow Jesus. And Jesus starts with a strange question. Did you catch it? What do you want? What an odd thing to say, right? I used to read this story and I actually thought maybe Jesus was having a bit of a grumpy day. Maybe he was hangry. I don't know. And I kind of read it as though he was rolling his eyes and kind of saying like to these two dorks that are following him, like, ugh, like, what do you want? But that's not actually what Jesus is doing here. I think what Jesus is getting at is actually the third point of our sermon. It's our way forward. And it's the key to understanding this gap that we experience between what we know and believe and then our experience of everyday life. This little question he asks is at the core of our discipleship. It's at the core of our apprenticeship to Jesus. Notice what Jesus does not ask them. Remember, we think we're just thinking things, but pay attention to what Jesus does not ask. He doesn't ask them, what do you know? He's not interviewing these new disciples and saying, tell me what your knowledge of the Bible is, And then I'll determine if you can be my disciple, my apprentice. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, what do you believe? Like, do you got it all figured out already? Do you know that I'm the son of God? That kind of thing. He doesn't ask them that. I think those questions are very important. Don't get me wrong. Pursuing truthful information is essential to your growth. What you believe about who Jesus is, is crucial to your faith. But, but, those are not the questions Jesus leads with. 
Why? I think it's because Jesus knows that these guys are not just brains on a stick. Jesus knew something that our Enlightenment philosophers did not. Maybe Jesus knew that information alone does not lead to transformation. Again, information is not bad. I devote my life to to studying and teaching biblical information and theology, right? That's not the problem. The problem is it's not enough for transformation. Maybe Jesus knows that we aren't first and foremost driven by our knowledge and beliefs, but that before any of that, we're actually driven by our wants, by our desires, by our loves, our heart. James Smith, he makes this argument in his book. He says that we are driven less by what we know and believe. That's still part of it. But he says we're driven less by that and we're driven more by our desires, our wants, our longings, our hearts, loves, he calls them. Hence the title of his book. You, instead of saying you are what you think, he says you are what you love. Jesus knew that discipleship or spiritual formation is about more than just getting the right information into our head. That is part of it, but it's about aligning our heart's desires with God's desires. That's why when Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them how to pray, what does he begin with? He teaches them to pray, God, your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done not mine. It's a prayer that right from the beginning is designed to help us realign our heart's desires with God's desires. So who are you becoming? Well, it all starts with taking some honest evaluation of the question Jesus poses to his followers right from the get-go. What is it that you want? What are the desires of your heart? Next week, we're going to dive into exploring the heart. We're going to dive into how do we evaluate what our desires really are. But for today, I simply want to leave us with this. If you want it to be true of you that each and every day you are becoming more and more like Jesus, then it begins by allowing his spirit to align your heart's desires with his. I'm going to give us some tools uh, on how we can do that in upcoming weeks. But for this week, let's start with this. This is your homework. It's really simple. Two prayers. I invite you to pray every day this week. It can literally be as short as 30 seconds or a minute, or you can stretch it out and make it a little longer. The first is in the morning when you get out of bed, pray the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, just focus on that first part of the prayer. Okay, that moment you roll out of bed, take a deep breath. Become aware of God's presence. And in your own words, say, God, would your kingdom rule in my life this day? In my work, at home, and in my free time. God, would the choices I make this day be in line with your will not my selfish will, which has deceitful desires. The choices of how to spend my time, my energy, my money, the choices of how I will interact with others, of what my attitude will be this day. 
Do that each morning this week and then just see how your day goes. I would love to hear from a few people next Sunday. And then, at the end of the day, before you go to sleep, pray a simple prayer called the examine. All it is is a three-part prayer just looking back at your day. First, you take a moment to replay the day in your head, kind of like it's just a movie, from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. Replay the day in your mind and take note of where in your day did you submit your decisions to God's will? Where in your day did you allow God's kingdom agenda to rule rather than your own agenda? Or in other words, where did you feel most like Jesus? And then give thanks to God for that. Celebrate that. Then the second part is to replay the day again and ask God, where in my day were my desires not in line with yours? Where was I tempted to allow my own selfish agenda to rule instead of yours? Where was I least like Jesus today? Confess that. Ask for forgiveness. And then the last part of the prayer is simply to plan for tomorrow. Say, God, thanks for revealing to me where I was close to you today, where I took a step of growth, and also thank you for revealing where I was not, where I missed the mark. Please align my heart's desires with yours for tomorrow. Help me to become a little bit more like you tomorrow than I was today. And that's it. Two simple prayers, one at the beginning, one at the end of your day. And all they are are two exercises They're not a magic formula, but what they do is they help you realign your heart's desires with God's at the beginning of your day and at the end of your day. Another way that we practice realigning our hearts with God's um, is through this community practice of communion. And so as we approach the table, we remember that on our own, our hearts tend to drift from God. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in your life and in my life, we're prone to seeking our own selfish desires. Some of them, some of our desires are good and God-given, but as Paul says, lots of them are deceitful. Making ourselves rulers of our life. And so we can quickly spiral into sin apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit. But at the Lord's table, we're invited by the Lord himself to come spend time with him, to learn from him so that we can become more like him. So if you claim Jesus as your Lord and you want to be his apprentice, then you're invited to come and partake of the sacrament. I'm gonna uh, invite uh, Faith up to come and help me with communion today. And as she comes up, let's pray.